Well, let's ask God for his help, and then we're going to dive in this morning. Uh, Father, we um, are grateful, uh, those of us who know Christ, we're so grateful to be your children. So grateful that we have a seat at the table rather than outside looking in longingly. And we don't get to come in the door because we have amassed a lot of credentials. We don't get to come in the door because we have elevated ourselves above others. We don't get to come in the door and be one of your children because we have successfully achieved a plan of self-improvement. The one and only way we get to come through that door is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're grateful, if that's us, we're grateful for that privilege at the table. And yet as we look around the table, there are many empty seats many tables with many empty seats and we long for the day when as the psalmist says uh, the knowledge of God will be uh, spread to the ends of the earth and one by one dozens by dozens thousands by thousands those tables will fill up and as we talk today again about your heart for the world, we pray that you would give it to each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Betty and I had the uh, opportunity back in July to spend a month traveling around this country and seeing things, uh, at least for me, everything that we saw was I've, new to me. I've never seen it before. Betty was on a trip with her parents when she was nine and saw some of this, but uh, came back thinking, wow, we have an amazing country. It's just amazing. And if you haven't gotten to see much of it, um, hope that you'll get that opportunity someday. It's, uh, I, uh, wow was kind of the word on my tip of my tongue for that entire uh, month. Uh, but we also have an amazing world. It goes far beyond our shores. Um, it's, it's interesting, I was talking with Michelle a little bit ago, my granddaughter got on a plane this past week and uh, is in Italy now for her first year in college. And that's not her first trip abroad. And I think how different her generation <clears throat> from mine. I, was, I, was, I think it was 46 before I left these shores for the first time and uh, I remember uh, flying around the uh, 10,000 miles around the world getting off that plane in Bangkok and walking into a an experience that was so foreign to me I mean everything was foreign it's, except for the fact that there were cars on the road everything else was foreign there was different trees and I was familiar with uh, there was different ways of calculating how fast you were going than I was familiar with. They were driving on the wrong side of the road. Uh, the food they were eating was messed up. Um, the language they were speaking was confusing. I mean, there's just nothing familiar about that. 
And after spending a week in uh, Laos and then another week in Vietnam, uh, got back on the plane, came home, never to be quite the same again. And it it wasn't just because I saw new things, which I did, uh, unbelievable things. And it wasn't just because I heard new sounds, the different language, the the little beep of the scooters instead of the blaring of car horns, uh, different music, not only different words to the music, but different tones that didn't quite fit with my Western ears, different smells. Even today, when I walk down a street of a city, uh, past a restaurant or past a house that's cooking different kinds of food. I can be transported back to Southeast Asia in, in literal seconds. But it wasn't just all of that that made the difference. It was the people. People that not only meet, but people that you see on the streets. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, can't see all these people without thinking about their souls. And so what I mean by I I was changed, I I spent the first three months after I got back from Asia working with um, Representative Pitts' office, he was a U.S. representative in in the U.S. House at that time, trying to bring over a family that I had met in Vietnam. Uh, the man had served with the uh, United States Armed Forces during the Vietnam War. After the war, uh, he was arrested and put in a um, re-education camp for three years uh, to teach him how to think right. And he, like other South Vietnamese uh, military personnel who worked with the U.S., was supposed to get kind of the head of the line in, in immigration to the U.S. After 12 years, that all fell apart. And so we were able to get his case reopened. It's uh, kind of a tragic story. We weren't able to get him here. But my point is, I came back not just saying, wow, that was some amazing things, but saying, wow, there are people there in need. I, I began to pray for the country of Laos. Both countries I was in, communist, atheistic. You're not allowed to worship publicly. You're not allowed to organize a church. And I began to pray not only for the people of Laos, began to pray for the leaders of Laos that God would change their hearts, that they would be more open to the gospel and to the church. I went back two years later to Laos with a, a Canadian pastor who was from Laos who had escaped um, swimming across the Mekong River in 1979 over to Thailand. And uh, the two of us plus Dave Ulrich went to visit the Ministry of Education in Laos to see if we would be allowed as Christians to come in and help their school students. And I've come to love traveling since that, by the way, I was kind of a homebody before that. You know, we'd go on vacation and I'd be eager to get back home after about day four or five. Uh, that's all gone. Uh, when we are driving home from our trip in July, uh, we were in Ohio, I think, and we're going to get home the next day. And Betty said, how about if we just keep driving? I'm like, I don't really want to see New Jersey. <laughs> I 
but I like her. She's the adventurous one, always wanted to travel, and we've been able to do that now to some really amazing places. And we love to travel to see the new things, but it is the people that increasingly, when I go someplace, I think about the, the people, when I look around at them, and when I'm in uh, Thailand or Laos or Vietnam, and I, I go to the Buddhist temples, or I see the monks walking up and down the street, and I see the people putting the marigolds at the shrines in the market, I think about the fact that these people need Jesus. I'm always trying to watch for God's heartbeat or listen to God's heartbeat. When we were in the Middle East in 2008, I remember um, being in a hotel in Amman, Jordan. And at 4 a.m. in the morning, I heard the eeriest sound as the Muslim call to prayer, the Atan, was broadcast across the loudspeaker of the madrasa in Islamic school right across the street. And that happens five times a day, wherever there's a large population of Muslims. Even in the United States, that happens sometimes now. And so every morning, about 4, 4.30 in the morning, we'd hear this. Even over the hotel's air conditioning, we'd hear this, Allah Akbar. Allah Akbar. Once, twice, three times, four times. Five times a day. And that was where God birthed in me a heart for the world's Muslims. We were in Egypt, we were in Jordan, we were in Israel, and every day, every day. And every day that that call rang out, it's a reminder that there are people who are listening to that call who will get down on their knees with their families on their prayer mats. And pray and hope that their prayers and pray and hope that their performance will be enough that Allah will take them to paradise. I've come to believe that joining God on his mission often comes from a brush with the world. In other words, if I'm primarily around people that think like me and kind of look like me and act like me and believe like I do. It's easy to forget that that's not the way much of the world is. Jesus said, John chapter 4, verse 35, I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. He's talking about the people who are not worshiping the true and living God and that there's many of them that are ready to respond if there will be people who go to him. And he says, wake up and look around. The more literal translations of your Bible say, look up. And it's the idea of we're walking along the road and, and there's things happening around us we're not attentive to because we're kind of looking down at the road. Look up and see what I see, Jesus says. Look up and see who I see. Look up because there's a world out there that needs to hear what you have to offer them. So some of you have met people in college who are from somewhere else in the world and you're drawn to that place. Uh, Some of us have 
been traveling and overseas vacations perhaps and we end up being drawn to that place and the people of that place. Even military service sometimes triggers that. It's interesting, all of the private attempts that were made in the last three weeks by former servicemen to get their Afghan translators out of Afghanistan. A lot of that was built in the bonds that they developed with those uh, men during their time there. One of the greatest mission pushes that took place in the 20th century occurred after World War II. And men who had served in, in the South Pacific especially uh, came home, believers came home, got some training and went back to places like Burma or uh, Indonesia or China or Japan. Why? Because they had a brush with the world. Yeah, it was in combat. But they had a brush with the world, a world in need and people in need. And they returned to try to meet some of that need. I've also seen the impact of short-term mission trips as people go somewhere for a week or two and they come back and their hearts are now drawn to that part of the world. They're now drawn to the people that are that part of the world. Well, short-term mission trips have been kind of shut down thanks to COVID-19. When this all started last March, uh, we were working on trying to put together a, a trip to um, Jordan uh, to serve Syrian refugees there. And uh, all that stopped. Things are changing so much in the world. Um, we don't have any trips planned on the horizon. And again, kind of see what happens with this Delta vir uh, variant, the virus. But I thought this morning for our last two Sundays on our kind of mini-series on God's mission that we would do a virtual short-term mission trip. And next week we're going to talk about Yemen and today we're going to talk about India. So I want you to just imagine the country of India. Uh, probably most of you know where it is on a map. Do you have something for it? Go ahead and put that up. And we want to talk about what it's like there, what it's like for the life of the people, what it's like, what kind of spiritual uh, interests do they have. Uh, India is a fascinating country. It's far smaller than I realized. So if you, take, if you take the United States, cut it into three pieces, three equal pieces, throw two of them away, you now have the landmass of India. So take all of the population of the United States and cram it in that one-third of our landmass and then multiply it times four and you now have the number of people in India who are living in a, a, a landmass the size of one-third of the United States. To say the least, it's crowded. It's the second most populous country in the world after China. There's 1.4, almost 1.4 billion people that live there. <clears throat> Fastest growing major economy in the world, the fifth largest economy of any nation in the world, but nonetheless, still the average income of the Indian worker is $3,168 a year. Now just try to imagine living on $250 a month and you have the Indian worker. There are in India about 300 uh, million vehicles, so all vehicles, motorcycles, scooters, cars, buses, trucks. That's the same, virtually the same number of vehicles in the United States, yet that represents four times as many 
people. Uh, Poverty is a problem in India. In fact, around the world, COVID has made poor people poorer. But most of that increased poverty has taken place in India. Statisticians say 60% of all the increased poverty across the world has been Uh, has taken place in the country of India. Some of you know something about India. You probably know that it is a caste-shaped country, C-A-S-T-E, or in Indian it's Jati, J-A-T-I. Caste means that the family that you are born into decides what all of your prospects will be in life. Now, it doesn't matter that this caste system was outlawed uh, back in 1948 already. It still is the, the operating system for how Indians view each other. What I mean by that is you, if you were born, for example, in the Brahmin caste, that means you're going to get the top political positions in government. That means you're going to be of the professional folks. You're going to get the education. If, on the other hand, you are a Dalit, you are untouchable, that means you're going to clean up cow poop in the streets. That means you're not going to be able to get above here occupationally or relationally. Your caste is going to determine who you can marry and who you can't. It's going to determine where you can live and where you can't live. It's going to determine where you walk and where you can't walk. It's going to determine whether or not you're allowed to have access to the village water. All because of how you, the family you happen to be born into and then there is this water problem India has 18% of the world's population in that country almost a fifth of the world's population is in India and yet they only have 4% of the world's water resources um Thankfully, there's a prime minister in power right now who is determined to see that water problems are resolved and that toilet problems are resolved. If I were to take you into Lancaster City, we'd walk up and down the streets. It wouldn't matter whether we'd go to Ross Street, go to Green Street, go to the School Lane Hills, President Avenue, Race Avenue. doesn't matter whether poor people live here or rich people live here or middle income here. In every apartment, in every house that you and I would go into, we would find one thing in common. And that is that you could go to the kitchen or you go to the bathroom and you open the tap and clear water comes out. Every house, every apartment. In India, that's not been true anywhere until five weeks ago. Five weeks ago, the very first city in all of India, uh, Puri, a city of 200,000 people, now has clean tap water in every house in every apartment first time anywhere in India you compare the life now in Puri with the life that Fatima Bibi lives she lives in a slum in New Delhi India and once every 10 days a government water tanker truck drives into her community where they will find uh, literally hundreds of water I don't know what to call them, water containers, water jugs, one for each family, or several for each family, I guess it is. And they are allotted 158 and a half gallons every 10 days. 
Now, that might sound like a lot of water till you sit down and think about how much water you use and you and I don't have to meter it. We don't have to store it. We don't have to uh, make sure it lasts a certain amount of time. So an Indian family, Fatima will start by cleaning the vegetables with the water and then she'll keep that water and then she'll use that to do her laundry. And then they'll keep that water and they might use some of it for cooking and some of it for bathing. There's domestic problems in India over how much water the family uses. You're using too much water to wash with. 158 gallons stretched over 10 days. Depends how many children you have. In most cases, you run out of water before the 10 days is up. And you have no backup plan. That's it. That's what you can get. You say, well, what about if you just go down to a stream, nearby stream or nearby river and get some water there? 70% of India's lakes and rivers are contaminated. Every day, raw sewage and chemical runoff is not being leaked into these bodies of water, but being pumped into them. It's interesting. India is often known as a dirty place, which it is. Some of that has to do with their religious convictions uh, as Hindus. Uh, some of it has to do with just not understanding sanitation issues. But Indians themselves are very sensitive to cleanliness and hygiene. What are they going to do about water? What would you do if you could not get water? Or the water that you have access to is polluted, bacteria, shortens the lifespan, makes, makes it more likely that your children will die young. When Betty and I were in uh, Israel, we had a, a guide, her name was Sarah, she was a Messianic uh, Jew, and sweet gal, she would get on the bus every morning and she would hold up her water bottle and she would say, mime is life. Mime is life. Mime is, is uh, Hebrew for water. Water is life. Make sure you have enough water for the day. Israel's desert, uh, desert and it's hot and dry. We need to make sure we have enough water. When Betty and I were out west, we drank more water than we've ever drunk in our lives. And we remember driving across the northern desert of Arizona, and there's hardly anything out there. Uh, a few shacks here and there, uh, Native Americans. And then all of a sudden we saw this huge, look, look plastic, like a plastic tank, maybe 25 feet across and maybe 8 feet high. And it was way, kind of off in the distance, but someone had scrawled with, with a paint can on it. Water is life. And there's a water crisis in India, but it's not just that water crisis. I want you to turn with me to John chapter 7. <clears throat> chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus says this. <clears throat> Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who is thirsty may come to, thee, to me. But then he narrows it down. Verse 38. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. He's talking about himself. You come to me, 
rivers of water flow from my heart. If you're thirsty, I have what you need. If thirst is your problem, I'm your solution. And Jesus would say today, in light of our conversation, that he has water for thirsty Indians. There are only about 33 million Christians in the nation of India. That's just a little over 2%, 2.4%. Think about that. 2.4% of a nation that's the second most populous nation in the world. You say, what does water do? Well, it relieves our thirst and it saves our life, right? If you go long enough without water, you will die. Quenches our thirst, saves our lives. <clears throat> Did you know that some water kills? There are people in our culture as well as the Indian culture. In fact, I was on a plane one time coming into Philly, sitting next to a man who'd grown up Hindu. And he was, I would say, kind of a not real committed Hindu anymore. And yet, Hindu by its nature as a religion is very amenable to other religions. One of the problems that, Indian, uh, that uh, missionaries have had in the last 150 years in India is trying to help them understand that you can't simply add Jesus as one more God to your pantheon of gods. That this is a whole different faith. And I remember talking with this young man about Christianity and, and he, he was like, this was his understanding. Religion is religion. All the same. This is increasingly what we're hearing not only from outside the church today, but even inside the church, right? Religion is religion. And water is water. All water is the same. If someone were, for some inexplicable reason, thirsty, hadn't drank water in three days, they come into our church lobby, one of our ushers takes them over to the fountain, their life could be saved. But if, on the other hand, that same person had crashed into the Atlantic in an airplane crash, and they're now alone in a lifeboat in the Atlantic, sitting around, surrounded by water, that water, if they drank enough of it, and it wouldn't take that much, would kill them. Religion's not religion. Water's not water. Neither the Hindus' many gods nor Islam's rigid, religious uh, rigid rules. Islam is, there's, there are a lot of Muslims in India. In fact, India has more Muslims than any other country with the exception of Indonesia. Neither the Hindus' many gods, Islam's rigid rules, Sikhs' moral excellence. Sikh is a um, kind of a more narrow slice of uh, followers in India but none of these religions plans none of their um, faiths can pay for their sins uh, it's the bottom line what, what, is, what does religion need to do well again people who think religion and religion say well your religion and their religion uh, is has the same benefits, it provides the same comfort, it has the same outcome. And I want to say, no, 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 no. 
Can it deal with sins? That's the real question. Can it deal with sins? Because in addition to all the, pro- the other problems that you might have and I might have, the most important problem is my sin has alienated from me from God. I have to have something to deal with my sins. And many Indians do not know that they need the living water that Jesus offers. Dave Ulrich gave me this book a number of months ago. I wish he hadn't. Don't you hate that when a book just convicts and bothers you? This is, a, this is one of those books. Entitled, Something Needs to Change by David Platt. Anybody read this in here? A call to make your life count in a world of urgent need. Uh, Annie Downs, a reviewer, says, I've just never read a book like this before. I am so moved. That's a good description. If you imagine going on a short-term mission trip for one week, and he doesn't mention the country, but I assume it's Nepal, and then writing a book about that week, about the people you met, about the conversations you had, about the experiences you had, about the uh, times that you had with the Lord and his word during that week, and your journal recordings, that's this book. And he's going on this trek, as I said, probably in Nepal. And, and listen to this. They got to a village, and they're invited into a home. It's a two-story home made out of stone and wood. Uh, the top story is for the family. The bottom story is for the animals, because it gets in the Himalayas. It gets down well, well below freezing in the winter. So you climb up a ladder to the second floor. It's one room, not very large. And that's the room where the family eats, the family lives, the family sleeps. So David and his translator climb up this ladder. They get into the room. Uh, The woman begins, she and her daughter, her husband's out working. Uh, She begins to make them this tea out of mostly hot water and butter. And, And then she serves it to them. And after a while, the husband comes home. And uh, David had seen this shelf, a little bookshelf up on the wall, and there's a book on it, and there's a little statue of Buddha, and uh, four silver cups in front of it, and some candles. And David says to the man, tell me about this, your statue and those cups, silver cups. Smiling, the father answers, the book contains teachings about the Buddha, We can't read, so we wait for a monk to read teachings from the book to us. One day, he says proudly, my son will be able to read them to us. At five years of age, they had taken their son to the Buddhist monastery where he's being trained. Now he's 12. He's being trained to be a Buddhist monk. And then he tells us about the shrine. Every morning when we wake up, the first thing we do is burn incense in front of the statue of the Buddha. We fill these silver cups with water and light the candles they are floating in, that are floating in them. Why do you do that every morning, I ask. We want to have a good life in our next life, he replied. Better than this one, his wife says with what seems like a hopeful smile, glancing at her husband. He nods, then asks me, you also do this, don't you? After an awkward pause, I answer, no, I don't. 
I begin to share with them a brief explanation of God and Jesus, at which point I ask, have you heard of Jesus? A confused look covers their faces. No. Who is that? Just as Kamal responded to this question the day before, it feels like they're envisioning a man they've not met from another village. They have never heard about Jesus and have no idea who he is. You know there are people like that in this world? Over half of the largest unreached people groups in the world live in India. Some of you picked up this prayer guide about two years ago, I think we handed them out. Pray for the 31. It's 31 days to pray. Each day has a different unreached people group who've never heard the gospel around the world. 31 days. Divide that in half. It's 15 and a half days. 16 of the days in here are people groups in India. And I don't mean people groups of <clears throat> 20,000, 80,000. I mean millions. 18 million. 50 million. Sheikh, the Sheikh people. 85 million people, Muslims, live in India. Never heard the gospel. About 459 of these, these are the largest unreached people groups in the world. About 459 million of those people, almost half a billion, live in the country of India. In fact, the vast majority of the world's unreached people groups are here. Many Hindus, many Muslims. In fact, 95% of India's population have never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, wait, there's 33 million people there. Well, think about 33 million divided by 1.4 billion people. Drop in the bucket. So how will the people of India hear about Jesus' water supply? Romans chapter 10. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what we want the Indian people to know. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. We could say American and Indian are the same in this respect. It requires the same thing. They, are all, they have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the good news. But then there's a caution or maybe a hesitation or maybe an explanation or maybe an admonition. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how would anyone go and tell them without being sent? 
That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring the good news. How will Indians hear about Jesus? Water supply from witnesses. Right? What Jesus said to his disciples shortly before he, what he said to the church before he went back to glory. And you will be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Paul doesn't envision the gospel primarily being spread through visions and dreams, although it is. Primarily envisions, just as Jesus primarily envisioned, that people go, take the gospel. How can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone, 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 someone tells them? From witnesses. But also through intercessors. And this is what I want to speak to the vast majority of us this morning. Some of you will go. I, I am praying for a great movement of the Holy Spirit in the years ahead that will see dozens pack their bags and go to an unreached people group somewhere in the world and stay there. But they'll be the minority. But what the majority of us do will make the difference both for them and for others like them who go and take the gospel. How will they hear about Jesus' water supply? From witnesses, but through intercessors. Matthew chapter 9, Jesus said this, <clears throat> verse 37. <clears throat> The harvest is great, but the workers are few. Now you would think, just stop right there, if you would think Jesus is preaching this <clears throat> at a mission conference, he's going to say, harvest is great, the workers are few, and so you get your passports in order, you start packing your bags, you, you, you get rid of the non-essentials that you have, and you move somewhere. That's not what he says. So, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into his field. And this is what you and I can do no matter where we are. If we're called right here through prayer, we can go and make an impact on reached peoples of the world. Pray for more workers. We have 97% of our missionary force that is working in places where the gospel has already reached. There are ready churches there, there are ready Bibles there, there are ready Christians there. 3% of our mission force is working in unre with unreached people groups. There's some 3 billion people around the world have never heard the gospel. Pray for God to raise up more workers, but don't stop there. Pray for a people group, an unreached people group. Maybe you have a certain part of the world that you're fascinated with. Maybe there's an unreached people group there. Go to joshuaproject.net, www.joshuaproject.net, and you can find people groups attached by country, by size of the people group, 
Um, and you can pick one. Like if you come to our house and you use our master bath, you'll see in the mirror there's a little card about like this. It has a picture of a man on there from Morocco and a brief description of the Amazir people. How many of them there are in the world? How many of them are Morocco? And Betty and I have been praying for this people group for 10 years. Uh, some of you know, three years ago, we went to Morocco to try to find the Amazir people. Um, as you begin to, listen, I'll warn you, if you begin to pray for a people group, God will begin to draw and woo your heart to that part of the world. You may go there, you may not. You may go there to visit, you may go there to stay, you never know. So just to warn you, this is dangerous. Betty and I rented a car for four days and drove around the country by ourselves, not knowing the language, not knowing how to read the signs and all that, just because we wanted to try to find this people group. And maybe God will do something really special in your heart. The other thing is, if you didn't pick up one of these a couple of years ago, uh, next Sunday we'll have a supply of them out on the table in the lobby that you can pick up one if you want. Uh, there's, there's different each day, as I said, has a different unreached people group. And there's uh, particulars about that people group on there that will guide your praying. I cannot, the older I get, the more I believe in the power of prayer. Um, I, I, I've been seeing answers to prayers in these recent months that I would have, first of all, I'm praying about things I would have never prayed about before. I'm, I'm seeing amazing answers. We have, I don't think we have begun to scratch the surface of our understanding of the power of prayer to move God's hand. I just don't think we've begun to it. Sam Zwamer, who's uh, the apostle to Islam, served in Bahrain and uh, I think Egypt for a while and some other areas in the Middle East. Um, just finished reading his biography a couple weeks ago. He says this, the history of missions is the history of answered prayer. The history of missions is, and I'll, my interpretation, the history of missions is ultimately not primarily just the people going. The history of missions is the history of answered prayer. And imagine how we could transform the world by simply getting on our knees and calling out to God for the world. Watch the Keystone Weekly in months ahead because we're going to start doing some prayer nights where we just get together to pray for particular parts of the world. And Father, we call out to you on behalf of the world, this morning especially India. We think of how many people live there and trying to imagine that as rapidly as their economy is growing and as, as sophisticated some cities are like Mumbai and so forth, that they, st so much of the country still needs the living water. Not just that they aren't interested in Jesus but they haven't heard of him and may you use us as a church Lord send some of us and commission all of us to pray for your glory and for their good in Jesus name amen